Amen. You may be seated this morning. If you're a kiddo, kindergarten through fifth grade, and you'd like to go party with Daryl and Heather and hear kids' church stuff, games, I've heard about a video. There's all kinds of good stuff going on in there. So we want to let you have that opportunity to check that out. Canaan just wants to go look at him. He's just, he's just begging to go. <laughs> It'll come, buddy. You'll get older one day. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a Bible with you today, turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 52. We've been preaching through um, the book of John verse by verse. We're going to continue that on today. We're finishing out chapter 7 uh, leading into Psalm, continuing into what John has for us. But while you're turning there, let me just kind of cover something that I think are two kind of common mistakes that can be made when we think about the Gospels. All right, two uh, common ones. And one of those is this, that we treat the, 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 the content just like uh, stories. They're just kind of like, you know, Paul Bunyan chopped down a bunch of trees and Jesus walked on water. And, you know, well, it's not so much whether he, you know, did it or not. It's just, you know, the lesson of Paul Bunyan and it's the lesson of Jesus. They are just good stories. Well, that's, a, that's heretical and that's wrong, right? But, so that's a fallacy. And, and, and I'm overextending that, but that, that's an idea. The other thought that you see is that we treat the Gospels like they're not stories. These are just almost like doctrinal things that Jesus is trying to review for people to learn and to know. Listen, I do believe that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is wanting to teach them, but also the reason these are put together is these are stories that really happened, but they're also written for our benefit to find yourself in the story. They are written there to intrigue your heart to realize a real man named Jesus lived. Josephus, a Jewish historian who doesn't follow Christ, even talks about a man who walks the earth, who claims to be Jesus, claimed to be the Son of God, and was crucified. History neither proves nor denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It, it doesn't know what to do. God's Word stands alone from these things. And I don't want to dive into apologetics, but I am just trying to tell you, find yourself in the narrative and think, man, where would I be in the story? What is He trying to convey to people? And not just looking for theology, but find yourself in the story. And so as we look into these accounts, what we see as we, we've been reading over the last couple of weeks together is an escalating tension, right? Jesus keeps saying this phrase. He says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Uh, we see parenthetical conversations where they're seeking to kill him. And it's because he's stirring the pot. He knows what he's supposed to say to cue up some things in their spirit, because He is the eternal God the Son made flesh. He does have a leg up here, does He not? So, let's read this story together in 25 through 52. It says this, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here He is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to Him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Here's the thing. The longer they take to act on Him, the more what He is saying is happening. And even people are going, we ain't ever seen somebody get up here like this OG. 
and talk, and ain't nobody stopping him either. Maybe he really is who he says he is. In verse 27, But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And Jesus even points out, hey, y'all don't even know where I come from, but, but that's even true, but they've been heard by rabbinical teaching about some things. So they're speculating, well, how, if we know where he's from, how can he really be what we think he is? Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me, that is something you can underline in your Bible, sent me is true and him you do not know. There is a sentness in the Scriptures that you can see over and over. And if you were to look for the word sent in the Gospel of John as you read it, you would find it like, like more than 60 times in the Gospel of John. God has sent Jesus. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are sending the church, which includes you. That's what you're supposed to catch there, right? Verse 29. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, who's going to come and do more than this guy? This guy, what he's saying is legit and real. Who could top him? He's at the ultimate showing of power. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They're just like, we're going to have to get this party started. We're going to have to shut that guy down. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to, to him who sent me. And you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I come, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Are we about to play the ultimate game of hide and seek? Is this guy going to run out of here and we're going to count to whatever and go find him in the Greeks? What's he saying here? He says in verse 36, What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. And it says this, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, you might underline that, we'll come back to that. Jesus stood up and cried out. Hear these things, right? Imagine this playing out. He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You could write in your Bible, underline Spirit, you could write Holy Spirit. That is who He is talking about. In verse 40, when they heard these things, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? <laughs> Be like, could it come from Van Buren? I'm sorry if you're from Van Buren. I love you. I love you, but Fort Smith's better. I'm just kidding. I'm just going. I'm a homegrown boy. I'm just having fun, right? It, that's what it would be like. Or maybe if you're from Oklahoma, you'd be like, from Arkoma? You know, you know, or whatever. It could be, you're picking a small town. You get the point here, right? Uh, look at verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David 
and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I love that. No one ever spoke like this man. Jesus saying, stop. You will not lay hands on me. My time has not yet come. And they're like, we never had anybody do that when we're trying to do our job. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, hey, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone out to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? (laughs) Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You just see a whole lot of things playing out here, do we not? Let's look back here. Verse 25, he says we learn uh, some things that they're already, even in 725, seeking to kill Jesus. Even now, uh, they are confused because Jesus doesn't fit their mold of what they thought the Messiah to be. And this is still happening today. Jesus not fitting our mold uh, among generations um, generations, some of us get them good and some of us don't get it good. And later on, God, you know, we, we see kind of some things here. And here's what we find. Either people are remaking Jesus or we just miss Him entirely. My, my generation, the millennial generation, the reason we've been talking about how to share your faith on Wednesday nights and equipping you on Wednesday nights to know how to share spiritual stuff in conversations with people is because the millennial generation of my generation um, says that they believe that evangelism is ethically wrong, that you should not do that. It's ethically wrong. However, they also said in the same poll, the most inspirational, life-changing thing they've ever heard about is when they were introduced to Jesus. (laughs) Does anyone find that ironic? Hey, Talking about Jesus with others is ethically wrong, but I'm so glad someone did it for me. You are a millennial. I mean, that literally should be almost like using the cuss word against them, right? Like, you are such a millennial. This is the thing that we see in our day and our time. We're not here to remake Jesus. We're not here to miss Him entirely. We're meant to see the Scriptures and to understand what He says in verse 28. This marveling moment of, I have not come on my own accord. Jesus is saying, what I say is not just what I say. It is what the maker of all things says. Verse uh, John chapter 3, you'll recall, 3.16, For God so loved the... That He gave His only Son, that whoever would in Him would receive everlasting life, right? Very common verse. Verse 17, God did not send His Son of the world to condemn the world but that through Jesus, the world might be saved. And if you want to underline any verses in another place in your Bible, if you were to turn just two books over in your Bible to John chapter, Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, I've memorized verse 8, but not 6 and 7. So I want you to read the, the, the warm-up here. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person 
one would even dare to even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, I would find it hard to give my life for someone I have no know of who they are or what they stand for or their value. But this is not how God loves Lee. Lee was dead in his sins, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. There was nothing there but lifelessness. But Christ has filled us with his life if we turn and trust in him for salvation. So, as Jesus says these things in, in the verses of the 20s here in verse 31 of chapter John chapter 7, he goes on and he, uh, John accounts that yet many people believed in him. They said, when this Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And these miracles, we want to understand that miracles are designed to authenticate Jesus' identity and message. And the reason I want to point that out, the reason I want to teach that to our body is because it is okay to ask God for a miracle. This morning I was praying with our brother Daryl and we were thanking God for the miracle of what he's done in Daniel's life. That young man was hit by a car by uh, Cavanaugh Road and Jenny Lynn uh, walking and a car hit him and then left. And this kid was left to die. Literally, doctors, I was there in the ICU room when they're talking to, to Daryl. Even Leewood and I are in conversation about how to help this brother navigate the burial of his son. Yet, I'm going to tell you, this this past week, he walked. He walked. He talks. Come on, I'm like in that hymn. And he walks with me. And he talks. This is a miracle of God. Right in front of us. Amen. The button has broken. You will all be under church discipline. No, I'm just kidding. Right? <laughs> it might be my son. This button usually says amen if you're new, but it doesn't, but it doesn't today. Here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna yell amen. Here we go. On Oh, I let it off. Here we go. One, two. Ah, oh, we'll work on it later. We tried. Here's what I want you to see. We asked God for a miracle. It was not wrong to ask God for a miracle. It wasn't. And I'm going to tell you right now today, if you want to tell me God doesn't do miracles, I'm going to tell you, I love you, but you're wrong. However, when God answers yes, that doesn't mean He loves us more. And when God answers no, it doesn't mean He loves you any less. In fact, it just means that God's kingdom purposes are maybe better served in this moment in time with a no more than a yes. Because God is sovereign over all things. You know why I say that? Because there are people in our body who are still asking God for a miracle. And they haven't got it yet. And it doesn't mean because God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that God's away from them. It doesn't mean they've done anything wrong. 
When we read these miracles, you need to understand in these gospel accounts, they are for his identity and his message. And when we read these things, we don't need to back away that God can't do it because we know God can do it. We know God can do it because it's in his word. We know God can do it because he's answering prayers. But we also know that God is holy and right and true and sovereign and is never caught off guard. And if the answer is no, he is still with you in the fire, my friend. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abilego. I mean, that was Arkansas. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys are tossed in the fiery furnace and and they're like, God's going to deliver us. And then they said this, but even if He doesn't, we're okay with it. God sometimes tells you no. He's not your genie. He is your Lord. So, verses 32 and 36, these officers, these, these, they send the temple police, and Jesus is telling them things like, a place I'm going, you cannot come. Like, this is the ultimate cops episode, right? Like, they're, they're showing up, and there's this moment here, people trying to uh, obtain him, and, and they, they just didn't get it. They're reflecting, Jesus is reflecting on his death, burial, and resurrection. You can't come with me. Where's he going to go? I don't know where he's going to go. How will they know? They're going to know. How will they know? You see this playing out. And Jesus is saying, what is he talking about? The thing that's appointed for me to do, you can't come with me. You know why? Because you're not worthy to do what I'm about to do. And so, we probably wouldn't have caught it either. In verses 37 into 39, um, we catch this idea more clearly as he's trying to communicate with us. And he says, these feast of booth, and on the last day of the feast, the great day, the reason I told you to underline that, so the feast of booths would have been fun. It's fun for anyone from Arkansas, because you would build makeshift dwellings, and you would camp with your family, and probably, you know, maybe friends slept over at other friends' place. We're all, they're all camping, and they're celebrating when God's provision of in, for them in the wilderness when God had delivered His people. And for seven days, they would do things like wave olive branches, they would observe special meals, and they would do certain things. And then in the temple, uh, in in Jesus' day, these priests would have walked down the the steps and placed it down to this pool, and they would dip water out of this pool that came from a fresh spring so that it was regarded as living water because it was a spring. Got it? Arkansas understands springs, right? He would have dipped it, and he would have done it in this gold, uh, golden pitcher, and then they had walked in, and they had walked all the way around the altar, holding this water, that had found a gold pretty bowl on the altar of sacrifice, and they would have poured water in, and it would literally fill up that, and then it would overflow, spilling out on the ground. And on the last day, they did that every day. Everybody would have watched just like, you know, like that sounds weird. You know what else is weird? Ooh, yeah, that's weird too. And so every day they had to watch and these people that went down there and they had to dip that water. They'd come in, they'd walk around, pour it in the dill. Come down next day, dip it down, turn around, pour it in the bowl. Dip down, walk up, pour around, pour it in the bowl. You, you get where I'm going. Hit, dip down, pour it around, pour it in the bowl. Up, dip down, walk around, pour it in the bowl. And on the last day, if you missed one of those days, you didn't miss much because that's what they did. But the last day, they dipped down, 
they walk around seven times. And then they pour it in the bowl. And then there's a dude over there with a the shofar. He's ready. They had all been there. And in that moment, Jesus is there with the crowd. And He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's when He did it. The great day. He hadn't been handing out flyers or anything. Hey, this is going down. I'm about to do this, y'all. Because He knew on the great day, the last day of the feast, He would stand up and celebrate as they have celebrated the provision of water in the desert and the pouring out of the Spirit on the last days. Jesus is saying, the last days, friends, are now. I am it. I am the fulfillment of all that you've been doing this week. It was all about me. Now you would catch on why they've sent the police, right? Now you catch on what they're doing here. In verse 39, note that John says to help us, this he said about the Spirit, capital S, whom they believed in, whom they were to receive, for as they yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He says, listen, they're talking, he is talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And this is powerful for us. Because I don't know about you, but we're so now removed looking back at the full picture, it gets lost on us, the marvelness of what we're reading here in these specific moments. If you were to put yourself in this day and time, uh, some of these people believe that he's a prophet. And we have people, we find some people today that believe in Jesus, but not with the full view of who he is, and not understanding everything that's supposed to be fully understood. We find people in our day and time believing in Jesus, but using Scripture to justify the, to their belief of not believing in Jesus. Well, I would believe, but he said this. And so they use Scripture. Just like the Pharisees, we have people in our day who don't believe in Jesus and use Scripture to justify it. And he says, His time had not yet come. Here we discover absolutely how sovereign God is over the affairs of men. We should rest in that. My time hasn't come yet. He has the ultimate view of things. Let me ask you this today. When we understand this, and we understand the view of how sovereign God really is when we look at the Scriptures, we understand what it means for us when we know Christ and the Spirit of God is indwelling our lives and is flowing out of us and in us and all these beautiful things. Here's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we clinging to this life like this is all there is to your existence? Are you clinging to this life like there's all there is to your existence? We often forget the John 3.16, which we all quoted together, that He gave His Son, that believe in Him, they receive everlasting life or eternal life. If this podium, if this podium represents the span of your existence, which would be bad because it has an end, right? But for illustration purposes, this podium is a linear representation of your life. We often think about everything 
Everybody say, man, you know, it's important what you do. And I, I agree, it is very important what you do here. But I want you to understand, when we talk about who you are, my index finger over the podium is your hundred years on earth. And we talk about everything in this life, what you're going to do at the end of your life. But when we talk about the end of our life, we're talking about the last 20 years of our life that we've saved up for retirement, never thinking about when Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven or understand the spiritual things of the kingdom because we live here. But listen to me, you're going to live not just here, you're, there's this. What are you doing here? What are you putting up for this part of your life? And Jesus says, listen, moth and rust, they destroy. Store up treasures in heaven. He's literally saying, there are spiritual things moving and doing in your life. Don't cling to this life like this is everything. There is so much more. Because later he's going to tell them in John, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That by when I do it, I come back again and you could be with me. Well, you're like, well, do we believe that? I believe that and I hope you believe that. If not, stop coming to church. Don't waste a lot of things with your time. This is all you got. Party it up or do what you need to do because it's going to be over before you know it. And I recommend not driving your car because car wrecks happen. Hide your kids, hide your wife. Literally, do whatever you're going to do. Don't hurt yourself. Listen, we don't live life like that. Are we playing it safe or are we taking risk? Jesus took a huge risk to show people spiritual truth on the last day when he stands up and says what he says. He is not playing it safe. He is proclaiming it. It is risky. You'd say, well, that was Jesus. And then Paul says, you want to be Baptist-like. Pentecostal-like. No. Well, Methodist-like. No. Last time I checked, everyone believes, Romans 8.29, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're going to be Christ-like. So what are we going to do? We're going to see what Christ does and we're going to follow Him. Listen, we need to understand you have one life to live, but you have, friend, one life to give. The greatest, uh, 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 there's a greatest cause quote I want to read to you out of John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. Um, you, after reading these two quotes, you may not want to read the book or you may want to read the book, but here you go. Here is what it is. The greatest cause in the world is joyfully rescuing people from hell, meeting their earthly needs, making them glad in God, doing it with a kind, serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the treasure He is. Why don't people ask us about our hope? The answer is probably that we look as if we hope in the same things they do. Our lives don't look like they are on the Calvary Road, stripped down for sacrificial love, serving others with the sweet assurance that we don't need to be rewarded in this life. And he says, don't waste your life. Chase the American dream. You will never arrive at it. You never will. Find Christ and you'll find Things. Jesus says it over and over. What does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What does it matter if you gain everything you've ever wanted in this life? Right, right here. But knowing that there's this to come, you gain the whole world and you lose your soul. This is what he says. 
And then you've looked back in verse 39, though, there's through an experiential lens, we understand Jesus is saying experiential language. And let me just say it this way. Christianity is a very experiential faith. Salvation is not just a change of position that affects your future. You don't just change your social status on your profile like, oh, I'm Christian now. Totally Jesus. Like it's more than this, right? It changes our experience that affects our life here and now. When someone says, well, I don't know how do you know whether you're saved or not? One of my simple questions I ask them is, have you ever been kissed before? Yes. Did you know you were kissed? And they look at me and they're like, yeah. You would know. You would know. Rivers of living water is not just a dry theological fact. This is Jesus saying a promise with an incredible experience to know and walk with Christ. Who is this promise for? Anyone who believe in Jesus. What is Jesus? Who does Jesus invite to it? Anyone who's thirsty. I find comfort in this. And most of us, the problem is though, have struggles in this life. We are seeking fulfillment here and now. So we find ourselves really feeling that sense of longing, even though you've come to know Christ. You're like, man, I, I, I still haven't really kind of settled my spirit with this stuff. And I get that. So, I, I just want to lay out a few things for us. First of all, I want you to catch this. John chapter 4, it says waters will well up in them. John chapter 7 and verse 38, it will flow out of him. To quote Warren Wearsby, an old preacher, he said it this way, God works in us but also desires to work through us. He works in us, but He also desires to work through us. And so you have to ask yourself, well, if you're like me and you're still chasing that struggle with fulfillment in this world, you find yourself saying, well, how do I know which one I am? And the, the, the kicker of that is, I want to tell you again, we're not just to be containers of the Holy Spirit, but rather conduits to flow through. And you say, well, how do I know which one I am? Whether I'm a container or a conduit. I don't, I don't desire to keep everything God's doing to me. I do want to see God work through me. How do I know wh where I'm at? And the question I would ask you is this. Do you make the people around you love Jesus more? Do the people around you want to love Jesus more? This is a clue into maybe how things are going in your life. And you'd say, Lee, I, don't, I believe in Jesus. I don't have this experience of what God's doing through His Holy Spirit. In fact, I've never really been taught much about it. And, I, and, I, and we're going to talk about that in a second too. But, but you, you, we often in the church go, you know, we have the Father. Okay, yeah, like, that's like Jesus' dad. Yeah, got it. That's, he's important. And then we have the Son. Oh yeah, that's Jesus on earth, right? You know, the Messiah. Okay, I get that. And then holy ingenuity. Or the holy it. You know, like th that, the, the holy force. We don't know what to do with Holy Spirit. And first off, I would say it, He, not it. He is a person. 
And He is God. And He is in us and with us and works through us. And the reason I want to talk about this is because some of us, we, we go, man, I don't really, you know, think about that stuff very much. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to miss literally what Jesus celebrates. You know what Jesus celebrates? The coming of the Holy Spirit. The movement of the Spirit, especially even in the last days. This is not to be squandered off with this idea of that only charismatic people get this. All people in Christ get this. And this is not to be weird and maybe you've seen weird things in your life. Don't toss the baby out with the bathwater here. Just because you've had a weird experience doesn't mean you should check out from literally the thing that Jesus celebrates what's coming after him. Also, I'd say it this way. We don't need to lower the Bible to your life experiences. Rather, you call your life up to consider the truths of God's Word. When I see like the spooky things of our faith, because if you read the King James, some of you do. They call Him the Holy Ghost. And when you get the woo of our faith, some of you Christians, it's fun to watch, disciple making. Lee, I don't want to talk about this stuff because it gets weird. Oh, like, the guy that was born of a virgin, died on a cross, resurrected again on the third day, and ascended to heaven is normal? Well, no, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, okay, yeah, that probably is weird too. So you're now you're not going to talk about Christ. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just, can I just help you all? Christian theology is weird. It just is. It is. like That's not what led people to Christ in the beginnings of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, what led them to faith was not right theology. It was hospitality of Christians on Christians. It was their radical love for all people and not looking at people based on the way the world does. And it was sharing and proclaiming the truth that God's Spirit had revealed to them and trusting God's Spirit to reveal it to those people as well. And then God actually did it. So I'm going to tell you, lean in. If you're like, well, I don't have this experience with the Holy Spirit like y'all are talking about sometimes, I would tell you to not discount this and to not check out of the conversation. What is the purpose of revealed truth in Scripture? It's to respond. And by the way, how can you, the Bible even says, how do you understand what the Bible's teaching? By the Holy Spirit. So if you've understood truth revealed to you, you've already met Him. You've already met Him. I've seen a ghost. You've already met Him. When you lack an experience, there are some common possibilities. One of those would be ignorance. You just don't know or you haven't been told about the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, we find a passage that some people pull on, and I believe a little out of context, um, Acts 19, a lot of people will pull on that thread where Paul says, but if you did, when you came to know the faith, did you, did, you, did you receive the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit? And they're like, no, no, we didn't. And the, so they, uh, these guys get laid hands on, they pray on them, and they speak in tongues, different things. But the text points out in Acts 19 that these guys had followed John the Baptist. 
And now all they had to point out to them is John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. And, and his baptism was a baptism of repentance, not a believer's baptism like we're practicing here, guys. And so these guys put their faith in Christ and boom, you know what happens? They receive the Holy Spirit just like everyone else did before. This is not a marvel new beginning for second blessing. This is literally them understanding what they never understood before, but were ready to receive and understand as truth. They were just ignorant. Number two could be immaturity right? You avoid learning about it. You, if you're like me, and I started realizing my pastor would tell me, when you learn truth, you're accountable to it. And so like now you're going to have to be like accountable to God because you knew how to do this, but you didn't do it or something. I started thinking about that. And for a moment, I had this thought, well, then I need to stop kind of coming here too much. Because the more I keep coming, especially on Sunday nights, we're talking about stuff. I didn't know it and now I'm accountable? Listen, that's spiritual immaturity. You're going to lack an experience the whole way through this. Number three would be incubating. Literally, just be patient and don't quit. God is working in your life. There's this progressive work of how God works in your life. Don't quit, man. You're more changed than you realized. God is doing more things in your life than you realize. But the last ones are the F word. Failing to hear. Literally, he's saying it to you over and over. God is trying to continually reveal truth and we just have selective hearing. Men, we have no idea what that means, right? Selective hearing. We don't ever do this, right? Exactly. Failing to do. One of the things I encourage all new believers to do is pray before they read the Scriptures. God, thank you for your revealed Word. I pray as I read it, Lord, you would show me what you want me to know. And then you read the text. And then buckle up and hang on. I've never seen God not answer that prayer. And then, the, and then you go and check it with somebody that's kind of walking with you in your life. And you say, hey man, I read this and I think it means this. Is this right? And the other thing I would do is I would take a pen and I would underline in my Bible things I didn't understand. Whether I was going to answer them in that moment or not. Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes not. But then I would go back and when I would look at it again, a lot of times I would understand it finally. No, no, no pastor involved here, right? Just understand it. And I'm like, man, thank you. Because I knew that God revealed truth and I knew that His Holy Spirit would teach me. That the Holy Spirit would reveal truth to me. Also, notice the verbs in John chapter 7 when he says, thirst, come, drink, believe. They're all present tense. This is a continuing action to say, keep thirsting, keep coming, keep drinking, keep believing. And so often we have these, too often, these feelings of longings that don't just satisfy and we think we'll just take more. And I'm trying to tell you, if we're not finding it in those things, it's meant to be found somewhere else. It's in Christ. And as I close today, I just want to say that the gospel is the answer to every need for life. It really is. The message that we talk about in our lives, in our homes, we talk about sharing the gospel of Christ. It is not a message of condemnation. It is a message of redemption. It is. And then not only that, the gospel isn't just what saves us. It keeps us. It fuels us. It motivates us. It empowers us. 
And so today, I want to encourage us today that if we don't want to become containers of the Holy Spirit, but conduits of the Holy Spirit to work through, then we literally need to grasp this idea that Jesus says in Luke 9. He says, hey, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. He's saying, you want to try to save things in this life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to pour it out and give it, you'll find it. Jesus is, is saying things about stories about treasures and, and, and how a man would buy a field and, and bury it and, and everything. Just He's talking about value and he's pointing out to them literally all these things like where your treasure is, where your heart is. Jesus talks about all these things about value and money because really he's trying to show them that there's a life in which you haven't maybe thought of there's a kingdom you haven't considered, and literally there's this calling of following me, and I will make all of you fishers of men. Um, I like the way Mark Horn says it. You can't outgive God. Even I've joked about this at times where I'll like feel led to give something of a certain amount or something to somebody, and I'll be like, you know, you know, not that you're really saying it, but you kind of are saying it in your conscience, like. You know, God, this is pretty impressive, what I'm about to do here. This is pretty cool for me. I mean, you know, God, you know what I got there, and I'm doing this. And I give it, and then just after the service, or sometime shortly, all of a sudden the Lord brings that same amount back. As almost to say, checkmate. Malachi, that verse, God says, you know, do these things. Test me. Test me. I'm real. We just don't think of our faith as empowering here and now. We keep thinking about Jesus is going to save you on the last day of your life. You know, you better pray with that preacher. Otherwise, you know, you can burn. So you need fire insurance. Just pray with the preacher. And at the end of your life, you'll have it. This is not a life insurance policy. This is not something you're cashing out on the last day. It's not something you're doing for other people. This is an altering of everything the way you've ever seen it to follow the one who is the maker of all things. Can I ask you a question today? Have you been churched in your life and you feel this pressure to respond because of things you've heard? Or have you actually been changed by God when His Spirit revealed truth to you, and you responded in obedience to the Holy Spirit, in obedience to Scripture, and you turned your life and your belief system over to the truth of God's Word and said, I want Jesus to be my Savior and Lord because of what God has done in my life. Has that happened? You're like, well, I mean, you know, I got baptized. Listen to me. I'm not asking that. Has there been a moment where God's Spirit revealed that you are in need of His work in your life. Because this is the real thing. And you say, well, man, I have it, you know, but I, I see it here. Then turn and trust Him. The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that look like? It literally looks like that you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, which means He's alive and active and moving in the kingdom, and you want to know Him as your Savior and Lord, and you confess it in prayer. If you're a believer today, how many of us are still living like we hope in the same things that the world does? 
Remember, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. I'm not saying having nice things is bad. Listen, everybody in here wants nice things. Everybody in here probably has nice things. They just can't be ultimate things. You can have nice things. You just can't have ultimate things. One of, uh, one of my mentors early on, uh, Buddy Coleman, told me this way. He said, there's two things God cares about when he thinks about money. How'd you get it and what are you going to do with it? How'd you get it and what are you going to do with it? He said, other than that, have fun. That was his thought, right? I'm not telling you to, to, to not love your kids and, and do these things. I'm telling you, though, God has sent all of us on mission. And we will give an account of what we're doing or not doing. And it'll either be rewards or regrets. And I don't want to live a life with regrets. I want to be like, God, if this is a poker game with you, which I don't know why you play poker with God, but you take your chips and you say, all in. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred to understand the life you are beckoning us to, which is life everlasting and rivers of living water flowing, not just in us, but through us. And God, some of us may lack that experience. We just don't understand these things. We don't know what it means. Our Father would pray that we would cry out in our ignorance or whatever state we find ourselves in, thanking you for the promise that, Lord, you will reveal truth to us. All we have to do is just seek you and we will find you, you said. So, Lord, I pray that we would have this desire as believers to lean in and to full out just trust you and pursue you in this life. That we would chase you in what you're doing in the kingdom to partner with you, Lord. You're not looking for us to do anything for you. You're calling us to do it with you, God. And I just thank you, Lord, for that. I pray that you would see our heart's desires just like Isaiah when he says in, in chapter 6, Lord, here I am, send me. God, we say, here we are, send us, Lord. We want to be servants in the kingdom of God. We want to serve with you, Lord. If some of it, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you though yet, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord, that they would even today desire to respond and trust you and make a profession of faith, Lord, where they're not ashamed of you, but they believe in you and they're proud of what you've done for them and they're proud and willing, Lord, to follow you the rest of their days in their life in relationship with you. God, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.